Hello and welcome to From the BOLN, the Burnley podcast. And this week, no Burnley game, but there's plenty of football going on. In fact, one of the biggest games you could imagine. England's women's team in the World Cup final on Sunday against Spain. And we'll be looking later on at Burnley's women's team. But first, let's talk to somebody who's out there at the World Cup. Not only that, a Burnley-born person out there at the World Cup. Rachel Brown, who's out there with the BBC, former England international, 82 caps. And uh, Rachel, it must be absolutely amazing out there. It looks amazing. The, the scenes we're seeing on television, what's it been like? It's been unreal, actually, Simon. Um, I came out as part of the BBC commentary team uh, for the for the knockout stages. Um, managed to bring my, my two little children with me and my mother-in-law to help out with the logistics of, of commentary as well as being here in Sydney for two weeks. And it's been unbelievable, the, the traction that the World Cup has, has had. Um, I've seen it really come to life, you know, from when I was arrived two weeks ago uh, and chatting to the taxi driver on the way in from the airport and not really knowing too much about the World Cup to, to where it was, certainly last night when Australia played England in that momentous semi-final in front of a, a, a sellout crowd, record figures on the TV, not just here in Australia, uh, but you know back at home as well. The viewing figures have been, been fantastic, just showing what appetite there is for, for, uh, for this World Cup. It's been, you know, I wouldn't say life-changing in some ways because it's been the first time I've been able to bring the kids um, for them right. to remember it and to be part of it and to come to the games and wear the England shirts and and uh, and be amongst all the England fans. Uh, but, it, you know, as much as Euro 22 was was a game-changer for women's football in, in our country, in England, I feel like the same shift is happening here in Australia and obviously being a part of women's football for for such a long time, that makes me feel really proud of the sport worldwide. I was going to say, I mean, I was lucky enough to be in Canada in 2015 and France in 2019, and each time it seemed like it had got bigger and bigger. I know you, you were you were you were in uh, in in France as well. I remember talking to you in in, in Lyon before the final there. Do, do you feel that it's gone up a notch, like globally as well, not just on site? Because obviously Australia's gone Matilda mad and or until yesterday they had anyway. Um, but they, do you feel like globally it's just stepping up every tournament? Yeah, with the coverage that's that's happened and the, the, the sort of each time there's been a platform for, for women's football, I guess, to be showcased, there seems to have been a bigger and bigger appetite each time. And like you said, in Canada 2015, uh, England got to the to the semi-final and then won the bronze medal, and that was you know a first, a moment in history for the team. Uh, again, 2019 got to a semi-final uh, and then fell short in that under Phil Neville. But now the difference is certainly from an England perspective is that Serena Wiegmann, uh, she was brought in by the FA and she's one of the world's best managers. She's the missing link with regards to managers. From previous, from an England perspective, um, you know, we've never had a manager who's won anything before, who's mm. come in to kind of lead us to that next level. And certainly Serena Wiegmann has got everything on a CV, on her credentials and, you know, from a historical perspective. But you see it game in, game out, the tactical changes, the decisions, the preparation that um, it seems that she has from a backroom staff and also that they've implemented 
not just on the not just on the field, um, you know, as live, but what they've prepared for coming up against different teams, changing formations. There's not something we saw in the Euros, but something that you know when in in this tournament, England have played against a team from every single continent, and with that, in a World Cup. Uh, you play against different styles. You play against players who, who, who pretty much this is their one time to be showcased. And with that, mm. it's a little unknown, unknown at times. Uh, but you feel like we are the best prepared team, even when you look at the court. Was um, it the last 16 game against Nigeria? We went down to 10 players. We had to then change quickly, change to formation. Uh, mm to sit in and play out for penalties. And then when it came to penalties, you saw that how prepared England were, even down to how quickly they set out on the halfway line and set their line-up. Um, all those little games that you see the very best teams, the teams that have won things before, that's the things that they do. They're the things that we're now doing. And that makes me, you know, whets my appetite for the final and makes me believe that we can do it because we've got the best infrastructure, we've got the best preparation. And also we've got, you know, a group of players who have got the experience of the Euros. They've got the experience of having lost in a semi-final at a World Cup. Uh, and we've got a really good kind of uh, bridge of experienced players and younger players coming in who can do the job. You know, they've shown different ways of having to do the job and they've done the job. They've won every single game in this tournament. And uh, yeah, it makes me really excited for Sunday's final. Rachel, I think for a lot of Burnley fans, they will have come across your name at first during your playing days, in the early days of your playing career, by reading the Burnley Express and, and, and Chris Borden's articles where he, he, he tracked your career, really, at every stage you were playing for England. So I'm going to hand over to our Chris because he's got some questions, of course. <laughs> I said it, so you, you, you look at you know what, what what's going to take place on Sunday and you, and, and you look back at sort of the hardships that you had to go through to even play the game, didn't you? I think we, we you tried to play in the Sunday league, didn't you? And as a you know, as like 12, 13 year old girl, and people were saying, no, 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 you can't have girls playing in a men's game, etc. And you're trying to find a club to to you know harness your ability. I mean, what, what was it like in those early stages? Yeah, I remember my first sort of like ever piece in the paper was playing for Bangor United uh, in the um, in in the boys team. And I was uh, interviewed during the match because we were in about 10 nil, and I was stood in goal. And there's a picture of me like stood in goal, kind of propped up against the, the goalpost um, <laughs> in a voice team. And that's, you know, that's just how it was. And I remember going then to secondary school at St. Christopher's in Accrington and, um, and suddenly being told you can't play mixed football. And, you know, I was thinking, well, well why? Like, you know, I just want to play football. And that was the rules then. Um, and I joined Accrington Stanley Ladies, so I was 12 years old and playing in a ladies team. So it's amazing how things have moved on, how things have completely developed. And, you know, reference now, I've got a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And how they're watching football now is they look at football as being for everybody. They don't see it as a, as a men's sport, a girl's sport. They don't think, oh, a girl's playing football, that's a novelty. They just think, well, you know, Everyone can play football and that's that's such a a refreshing and rewarding kind of yardstick really as to where football is. Because football should be for everybody. 
whether you've got a disability, whether you're male, whether you're female, whatever background you're from, from a, a kind of monetary or economic point of view, religious point of view. Football can be enjoyed by everyone from literally across the world. Um, you know, I've, I've now, now I'm an old lady, I've joined a golf club and uh, even like all my 60-year-old golf friends, they were dancing in their front room and sending me videos of them enjoying and watching the Lionesses win um, the, the semi-final. And so it's really kind of the traction, the, the, the number of people and the, I think like the spread of people, you know, people who've never watched football before of from the Euros last summer and to this summer now, certainly that the Lionesses have got to the final. Everybody's part of it. Everybody's able to enjoy it, whether they, they're into football, whether they follow a team, whether they've played football ever before. Like everybody has a little bit of reason to want to follow the Lionesses. And I think that's ever, ever more powerful. You know, we follow Burnley, you know, for, forever. And uh, we love Burnley, but sometimes that's been exclusive. And that's not just Burnley, that's, you know, that's all, you know, men's football teams. It's excluded a lot of people. Um, and, and that's just the nature of the sport and, and how it's developed. But, you know, the fact that women's football has become front face and it's been on TV, everybody's talking about it. It's, it's bringing a lot of new people to that environment and, and certainly now I've got children and and um, and being able to have them part of football, not just here in Sydney, but but um, as as part of football and enjoying football, I think that's really really refreshing. Yeah, I mean, you go back. I mean, sort of look at when you were fifteen playing. You playing for Liverpool, but it wasn't the Liverpool that we know now in terms of the women's team, and it wasn't the cup final in terms of what we know. It was, I think, it was on a a cable channel that nobody had heard of, and you'd struggle to get hold of it. But, you know, now, even now, you know, we're playing at Wembley Stadium, there's 80,000 there. It's just a, a different ball game altogether, isn't it? It is entirely, Chris, you're right. Um, I think it was on UK Living was that final in in, uh, in 1996. But, you know, I, I was at school still then. I was a secondary school playing for Liverpool. And you're right, Liverpool um, was the name of the club, but we weren't in any way attached to the men's team. Uh, and yeah, I went down at the weekend, played an FA Cup final and then went back to school on the Monday. So, uh, so much has changed from those early days. And, and you know, it's it's always been a real source of pride that Burnley and particularly you, Chris, uh, has followed my career from being very, very young, then out to America when I went to Lifton, uh, went to university over there to pursue football and then been in the England team from then on and seeing how England's developed, how, how you know, my football's developed through that. Uh, it's been always a privilege to always tie it back to Burnley because that's where it all started. You know, St Stephen's Primary School is where I first got the chance to play in a team. Uh, and I'm very, very proud that I come from Burnley, that my parents still live there, that I can come back and, you know, wax lyrical about those grounding moments of being able to start football but also seeing how you know Burnley FC women's team has has really really developed how the academy or the ETC the various names that have changed the sort of youth system has brought through lots and lots of players so all of that you know it, it's not it's not a, a personal kind of sense of 
privilege or pride that I feel. It's a, a general sense of sense that it's been for the betterment of thousands of people, if not millions, uh, not just for me. So, and, and, and that's the same with this World Cup. If England go on to win it, it makes history. And that makes me feel so, so proud of everyone who's ever been involved in women's football, including you, Chris. Hmm. I, was, I mean, your, your generation, but was it fair to say, I mean, you pretty much had to go to America to further your your career? I mean, nowadays you you might come through an academy at you know, Manchester City and you do it that route. But, you know, to improve yourself, you, you, had to, you had to go to the States. Exactly that. I was at Nelson Cone College and um, I got the opportunity to go off to America and I wanted to go to university because football was not a professional career. It was ultimately, it was a hobby. You know, I was playing for England, playing for Liverpool, but made no money at all from, from football. That was never my underlying drive to want to play football. I just played it because I loved it. And uh, But you're right, at that point, going to America, the US Women's National Team were the best in the world. So to go there and uh, get my degree play football every day was just something that I couldn't have I couldn't have wanted anything more than to play football every day to to you know I felt like a professional because I was doing all the training programs and I was playing for England but we weren't professional we weren't paid we, we were training two or three times a week uh, and you know that showed as, as a national team we, we weren't very good uh, as far as a ranking I remember being in America as I said, training at Alabama, playing for Alabama, University of Alabama, transferred up to the University of Pittsburgh. But in 1999, went and got the chance to go and watch the World Cup final. So that iconic moment where Brandy Chastain whipped off a shirt and did a knee oh, yeah, slide yeah. after the, pen the, the sort of penalty shootout. And I can't believe that I was there, you know, I was there watching that and thinking, I remember thinking, like, the these are superstars these are like millionaires these are front page newspaper iconic female athletes and you know they are in some sense my peers but they seem so far away so untouchable from a national team point of view and there's a couple of us out at uh, university in, in america at the time doing you know for the same reasons as i was uh, likes of kelly smith um, were out there and we came back with a renewed sense of energy that we wanted some of that we'd seen you know the the kind of iconic status that these players had and we didn't want that for us personally but we wanted our sport to be recognized in a you know in a similar light to how theirs was and you know I think only now where after winning the European Championships and being on the precipice of of, uh, of winning a World Cup we truly are that Football is seen as a sport for anybody. Uh, and that was the biggest sense that I got in America was that football wasn't a boys or a girls sport. It wasn't a women's or a men's sport. It was just football. And I feel like we're really getting there. And that makes me, you know, that's been a long journey. But, you know, all of those kind of poignant crossroads and, and moments that I've experienced have been part of, of what we see today. There's, there's been an interesting debate in the States um, since they got eliminated in this tournament where, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit more it's a bit more than a post-mortem. It's, uh, it's, I think there's a sort of sense of that it's the end of an era for, for, for soccer in America, for women soccer, in the sense that they dominated for so long, obviously, in so many competitions, Olympics and World Cups, and they've realised that the rest of the world has caught up now. 
because it's not just one or two teams either, is it? It's you know they 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 pretty much struggled in every game that they played, and the the interesting football came from other countries really. Um, do you do you think that they need to now look at at, at uh, the game around the world and realise that maybe they need to change the way they do things, having been the pioneers in so many ways? The whole system in America is has, has just been so exemplary to, to so many others. And, you know, that stems from the university system and they produce professional basketballers, professional American footballers, professional MLS players, professional women's soccer players. You know, every sport that we see, American sport that we see on our TVs, most of those players are products through the university system. So it's really been hard to compete with that. And that's why the likes of me and, and others went off to America because that was the best case scenario for, for players of our age. And you're right, everyone's caught up and they've not done it the same way. Uh, I think what what um, the FA did 12 years ago now in developing the Women's Super League, they didn't just replicate the professional league in America. Uh, they did it their own way. They looked at the marketing strategies. They looked at clubs uh, here in, in England, uh, as in sort of the men's clubs, the big brother side of the clubs, uh, and looked at how we could integrate like women's football into men's football and just be kind of one club. And I think after certainly after the, Europe, after the European Championship success last summer, we saw games at the Emirates, games at the Etihad, games at Stamford Bridge, games at Old Trafford, uh, for dom domestic games I'm talking about. You know, that's something that we've not seen before. And not only games at, you know, the Emirates uh, with, you know, a handful of people, games that were sold out. And hopefully that's like a blueprint of things to come. And we've already seen that Chelsea, if I think Chelsea women have already put out uh, that there's going to be at least four games that are already in the, in the calendar uh, at Stamford Bridge. So, mm. yes, USA have been caught up. But different countries have done it their own way, but they've looked at, you know, the standard. They have been the pioneers for the standard of uh, international football, winning World Cups, what it takes to win World Cups. And, and you know what, players like us who've been out and, and worked alongside Americans have seen those characteristics that it's taken to, have, to breed that winning mentality. And we've taken bits from living and playing in that league and, We've learnt from from you know how they feel because you know English people and, and American people think in a different way. You know we can I, I could play for England, which I did, and there'd be an American equivalent who never played for the national team. But you think how they talked, how they big themselves up, that they were a better player than me. That's just their mentality, you know. But right. on a on a performance level, actually. We had to learn from that because being that, that fine balance of arrogance and self-belief, it is the fine balance. And when you're looking at a professional athlete, you've got to like, you've got to really have a huge amount of self-belief that you can go out and perform and be, you know, the, the sort of the best version of what, what you can be. Now, whether that collectively becomes a team that can beat the likes of the US, but you can learn from those characteristics and, if you can drive performance levels, which we have continued to do, uh, in certainly in the national team and across the WSL, you know, there's a lot of things we've learned from them. I think they, the US Women's National Team, have maybe tipped that balance in arrogance over self-belief, and uh, it was certainly in this World Cup maybe they're undoing. Chris, I say I can remember sort of you know 
speaking to you sort of in in the early days and it, it, England were I mean it was an achievement to qualify for a Euros to qualify for a World Cup and now you sort of like the mentality is setting out the plan the process to go and win the thing isn't it you know it's a it's a whole different sea change really it's uh you know in the space of sort of 20 years it's just it's just gone full full course hasn't it there's been a few key people at the FA who've who've continued to kind of bang that drum and and to drive change. And you're right when when I joined when I was first part of the England setup, uh, and when we first got our uh, first full time um, head coach, Hope Powell, there was Hope Powell, there was Kelly Simmons, and there's Rachel Pavlo, three people who were the only full time members of staff who were solely. Um, driving women's football and I'm not just talking about like the senior national team I'm talking about all of women's football and you know you're here in Sydney and you've got probably more full-time members of staff who are there to drive the performance of women's football than there are players but that has been 25 if not more years of investment of mindset change because there are a lot of people at the FA and they know that, who weren't on board with pushing women's football. Um, there were a lot of people who needed to kind of be moved to one side, who uh, had had, you know, we talk about the, the dinosaur mentality that, that was there. End of. I, I've seen it, I've heard it, I've endured it. And I'm glad that, you know, those people, people who actively want to drive participation, performance levels, um, in women's football are now in place at the FA. Um, the fact that they're doing it properly, the fact that they've invested resources in youth football, grassroots football, in, um, when I say youth football, I mean like under 15s, 17s, 19s, all the different age groups of international football, um, which again, when I started playing for England, I went straight in at the senior team because there wasn't any youth teams. So from 97, when I made my debut to where we are now, there's just been the most seismic changes in the infrastructure of elite level football, but also in grassroots level football. And it makes me so proud that, you know, there's millions of girls and women who are now taking up the, the sport of football um, because they can, you know, because so many years ago they didn't take up football because they couldn't. And so it's a huge, huge change. If you think, I think I remember you telling me in in China in two thousand and seven. I think you 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 didn't have a dietitian or a, a chef or anything like. that. we saying sort of girls were nipping off to to McDonald's, you know, to to get you know a nicer meal and things like that. It was uh, that's how things have changed, I suppose, as well. <laughs> Yeah, 2007 was our first World Cup under uh, since the FA took over in '95. So we've been in the World Cup in '95, but that was you know pre pre uh, FA rulership. So it took you know I mean gosh that's it was 10 years of being an England player before we qualified for a World Cup, which seems ridiculous nowadays. You know you've got like the likes of uh, Alessia Russo, Ella Toon, a lot of them their first World Cup and they're on on the brink of winning it. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. So, yes, you're right. We had a physio, we had a doctor, um, and that was pretty much it. We had an assistant coach, a goalkeeper coach, and a, 
and, and you know, not all of those were full time either. So to get to a World Cup and to get through to the quarterfinals at that point, it was a historic moment to have qualified for that World Cup um, and such a proud moment and one that all of us involved in that were, were sort of like so, so proud of. But do you know what I met up with in the in the fan park here in Sydney, a few um, former players, the likes of Pauline Cope, who was the England goalkeeper before, uh, you know, she was the goalkeeper who started when I came into the England squad. She was here and she just said, like, how much things have changed has been unbelievable. And I met up with Kelly Smith and Farrah Williams tonight and Alex Scott and all of us who basically uh, have lived life before professional football, have lived life before kind of qualifying for World Cups. We've then been on that, that kind of journey of change and then are now on the other side of it from a media perspective still in it and still enjoying it and still being able to be part of that um, huge enjoyment and sense of pride of, of, of where we potentially could be in, in winning a World Cup. You can see, I mean, you, you, you're pretty, pretty close with the girls now, aren't you? I saw you, you know, the pictures with Mary Earps and things like that. There's a, there's a real bond there, isn't there, with the, with the past and the present? Yeah, and it was lovely to hear, certainly in the Euros, um, you know, about a couple of years ago, the FA rolled out legacy programme so that every female player who played for England was recognised with a, a legacy number. Uh, and that has really brought the whole Lioness family together. Whereas, you know, most England players who finished went on to then, you know, say like yesterday you finished playing for England, uh, you know, tomorrow you start full time as a dinner lady or as a, a, post off, a, a postal worker or as a physio or as a teacher. You know, that is most of my friends do full time jobs outside of football, exactly in the sort of jobs I've talked about. Um, the likes of I was saying myself and Farah, those who are here covering uh, covering the, the World Cup feel so privileged to be in that position but also like you said the in, in the European Championships there was a lot of talk of you know this is for all of the Lionesses that have come before them having won that you know to have gotten them to that point and, and you know that was only a year ago and the likes of you know Lucy Bronze and Mary Earps who you know I've been in squads with for, for years um recognize that and understand what it was pre-professional football which is you know just a few years ago so there's still that very surface level recognition of um everything that went beforehand everything that's taken to to get to this point and that yeah that that certainly uh, there's a tear in my eye when we got to the final um on wednesday I bet there was. I bet there was. But I mean, even things like, uh, I mean, Mary was saying before the tournament, she's saying, why are you not selling my goalkeeper shirt, Nike? But you you had to wear the men's jersey, didn't you, basically? You know, the huge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did. I, I got, I remember I got uh, pretty much David Seaman double XL. Um, you know, the sort of like um, that, that red shirt that had like uh, this sort of yellow and green and purple and different colours on it. And I was yeah. like, why the hell have I got a double XL shirt? And they're like, well, <laughs> it's from the men's team. You're like, all right, nice one. I mean, you get loads of signatures on it, but it's uh, it, it certainly has changed since then. And you're right. And people like Mary Earps and, and players who are, you know, as I said, about to, whether it's the Spain team, whether it's the England team, about to win a World Cup, 
Um, they should be pushing for better. And the fact that Mary Earp shirt is still not on sale, no Nike goalkeeper shirt in a, in a women's fit is uh, is available. When, you know, I know I'm biased, but I think the goalkeeping in this tournament has been absolutely unprecedented. Mm. Um, Mackenzie Arnold in for Australia, saving penalties to get them through to the semi-final. Um, you know, number of player of the matches that have been for, for the goalkeepers with Van Domselaar from from the Dutch team, Musevic, who got Sweden through to the semi-final mm. uh, with a string of amazing saves. It, it does seem a little kind of, I'm a bit dumbfounded by those strategic decisions by the hierarchy at, at Nike, which it seems to be predominantly. Because when you look at Manchester United and the Adidas sponsor, um, from what I read, Mary Earps was the third most sold shirt across really? mm. uh, from Manchester United, both men's or women's. So, you know, off the back of the Euros win, uh, the third most sold shirt uh, is is pretty impressive. Albeit, you know, Man United didn't have the best season, the men's team, but Mary Oaks was the star of the show and still is. So, yeah, sort it out, Nike. <laughs> you talk about the sort of like the, the goalkeeper performances and just in terms of like the evolution of goalkeepers in general. I mean, uh, sort of, uh, you know, your thoughts on sort of goalkeepers, we're almost look at them more as you know in terms of their football ability as other than the ability to keep the ball out of the net you look at you know Aaron Murich that won everyone over at Burnley last year and James Trafford's a similar type but what what are your thoughts in that sort of in terms of that conversation uh, it's modern goalkeeper in football and you know that's men's and women's that's just football uh, it's the ability to play out from the back to be comfortable with the ball at your feet and and we've got that, we've seen that in the World Cup, we've seen that, like you said, James Shafford, I think it's a brilliant signing for Burnley, uh, was was absolutely fantastic in the summer um, for England and certainly one for now and for the future, I can see him, him uh, being a world-class goalkeeper and certainly a Premier League class goalkeeper for a long time to come for the rest of his career and it does take that but it takes years of, of kind of that honing that skill. You don't just kind of like, right, we're going to play off in the back this season and be brilliant at it. You know, it's, it's going to take time. But with regards to standard of goalkeeper at the World Cup, it's the best it's ever been, 100%. We get that because, you know, in every country that's been represented at the World Cup, and you've got to remember, it's moved to 32 teams, this Women's World Cup, for the first time ever. Before that, it's been 24. So you're expecting some potentially dismal goalkeeping, some really one-sided games, some, you know, gaffes, uh, some really poor teams. There's been none of that. The, no. Every team that's been, been a kind of debutant has really has not looked out of place. And it's been, you know, for, for me, loving analysing goalkeeping, it's been unreal to be able to unpick, you know, how a, how a goalkeeper's made a save rather than why they've made a gaff. Uh, and it's... Uh, you know, to be able to articulate that, actually break down, you know, how the... Because you've got to remember as well, the, the the average height of the goalkeeper in the World Cup is about five foot nine. We're not six foot two, we're not six foot three. Mm. So how you make those top corner saves is actually slightly different to how you make it if you're six foot two or six foot three. Your position's got to be slightly kind of cuter. It's got to be slightly... Um, if you're making, say, a point-blank save, you've actually got to gamble and be a bit further down the line because then you cover more of the goal. And with that, you've got to have better reaction saves, uh, be, sorry, better reaction time. So how we train as goalkeepers, being an average height of five foot eight, five foot nine, is slightly different to how male goalkeepers in the Premier League or further down the leagues 
would train. It's not, it's not a disadvantage. It's just a slightly different way of training to be able to make those saves. Yeah, it's fascinating. But in in terms of sort of the, you know looking ahead to to Sunday and the other the, you know the big day, you know they've got to go out and and win it again. But uh, to to have got where they've got without without you know the captain, you know and Beth Meth Mead, one of the best players in the world over the last few years, and then you lose Kira Walsh for a game or two, and you lose Lauren James, and they they've managed, just managed to adapt every step. It's, it's almost like a German Italian. You know, the, the way that they've they've gone through and they've got better every game, they've shrugged off all the challenges and just one more to, to overcome. I think having the best manager in the world helps keep things steady, keep mentality steady when other teams or potentially individuals might panic, think, oh, we've lost our best player. Lauren James, like you said, was starring in the tournament and... You know, then shows her naivety and uh, her her immaturity to to do what she did. Available for the final, we'll see what happens whether she'll start or not. Um, as you mentioned, losing Leah Williamson back in March, I think it was so soon to the tournament was never going to be back. Beth Mead, who was the the top scorer in the European Championships, you know, we felt if we took the European Championships team to this World Cup, you feel confident in winning it, but we didn't. We were far from it. And I think a lot of people thought we're not anywhere near as confident that England could go on and win it. But what they have proved, every single game, every single task that they come up against, the likes of Haiti, you know, you wouldn't, looking at their ranking, you'd have thought England would have absolutely battered them. Haiti were like outstanding. They posed so mm. many problems. And it was only, it was, you know, a clutch save from Mary Earps. Um, you know, retaking penalty from Georgia Stanway that we scraped through. But what England have shown, where they may be down in quality on what we might have expected from the European Championships and how we swept through the Euros to go on and win it, they have been tested in different ways. Their character, their resolve, their ability to apply different tactics, not just building up up to a game, but partway through games as well has been absolutely exemplary. They've drawn on every experience that they've had as individuals. They've also drawn on the collective belief that they have in Serena Wiegmann and the tactics and preparation that she's had. I've seen, like, um, I think we were talking just before the show, when Lauren James got sent off um, going down to 10 players, there was a scenario planned for that by Serena Wiegmann. I saw before the VAR decision was was even looked at and overturned, she brought Lucy Bronze and Millie Bright over to the sideline to tell them, look, we think Lauren James is going to get sent off. This is how we're going to set up. So there was no blip. There was no settling in process. You know, when the game was restarted, they were already set in 4-4-1. Everybody knew what they needed to do. They knew they were going to ride it out for penalties knew that they were better prepared than Nigeria to execute those penalties and got through that game. So every game has posed a different test and England have rose to that test. Um, so it, like that's whether that's resources, because you look at the base camp, I've been up to the base camp and I've, I've looked around and seen everything that's there and they have everything that they need to 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 prepare to recover in between games to relax families are, are over and are here which is really important and forms a big part of a lot of players preparation and being kind of mentally ready for games it's all there for them 
So they've all they've had to do is go out and perform on the day. And the final on Sunday is, I hope, another example of no stone being left unturned in preparing to do the one thing that is left to do, and that's lift that World Cup. Yeah, and obviously you know the, the Spain game from last se- last summer's fresh in the memory as well, and that was a, an epic as well. You, you'd imagine something along those lines on on Sunday. Yeah, I think it's going to be tight. Um, like the Jorge Vilda, the the manager for Spain, isn't liked. There's been a lot of like preamble to this tournament. Um, the players wrote a letter. An open, sorry, a letter to the Federation, which was then published by the Federation. It was meant to be private, but it was published by them. So there's a lot of discord is what I mean in the squad. There's several players who have, you know, stood by that letter of standing now for the national team and, and are not here uh, at the World Cup because of that. Several players who've reinstated themselves because, you know, it's a World Cup and you, you want to, if you've got one chance at playing the World Cup, you kind of want to put your indifferences with a with a with the coach to one side to be able to do that and to win it for your country. But certainly not everything's not everything's great within the squad of Spain. But as you said, Euro twenty two twenty two, that was the closest game that we had in the whole of the tournament. Um but you know the final was, was a close one but Spain, whoa. I mean, I remember the commentator next to me and saying, we're not going to do it, we're not going to do it. And I was like, shut up, Robin. It's like, we are going to do it. Like, we have got, we've got another level. We can get back in this. And uh, and we did. But, mm-hmm. you know, they they pulled, um, like, Salma Paraguayo, who's an 18-year-old Barcelona product, has come on and scored the winner in the last two games, I think it is. Um as well as they have Alexia Pateas, who's a world superstar, back. Yeah. She got, got ACL injury just before the Euros, so not unavailable. So they have firepower. They're not in the final just by luck. It's going to be, it's going to be right to the wire. I can see it going all the way to extra time, if not penalties. And there'll be tears if it uh, if it goes the right way. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be tears either way, I think, from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I could only imagine. I mean, just looking. Obviously, I mean, I think Burn, Burnley uh, ladies opened their uh, league season on the same day. Obviously, I'm sure there'll be uh, ways of them watching the final before before they play, etc. But I could only imagine. So the one thing making you prouder would be to see maybe in the future, sort of Burnley advance up those levels and and create a, an England international, you know, from from the Burnley ladies setup. I mean, that'd be uh, that'd be something to shout about. Well, that's it. Like you know, any girl from Burnley. Um, previously, of course, they've had Burnley women to play for, but they've not had a, they've not had an academy. They've had to go to Blackburn Rovers, or they've had to go to Liverpool or to Everton. Um, that's that's what needs to happen to produce the best from from Burnley. And I would love. I don't. I don't want to be the only you know international from Burnley. Yeah, you know, I, I want. I, I would love to see that be kind of commonplace that first of all every girl you know as per the the lionesses um legislation they put in place from from winning the euros that every girl has equal opportunity to play at, at junior school and i think that that should be given nowadays um you know physical differences are minimal at junior school level and there's no reason why girls can't play football uh, or be given the opportunity to play football if they want to uh, and and that only grows the pool 
you know if someone if you never know that you're you're really good at football you'll never you know kind of get on that pathway it's the same with any sport you know i remember going to the olympics in 2012 and thinking how on earth do you get into like canoe slaloming or or kind of like you know fencing pole vault. But, you know <laughs> but that's it <clears throat> how would you know you're dead good at pole vault unless you're given a chance <laughs> and it's the same for you know for for girls in football particularly girls because you know there hasn't always been that same opportunity um and i would love more than anything for for Burnley to continue their um you know their one club mentality for it to become ultimately aligned and in the championship and then maybe onto the women's super league and yeah ultimately to have a to have an england player come from burnley would um would almost make me feel like probably a grandma a proud grandma at that time <laughs> Well, we're going to get on to looking in a bit of detail about what Burnley are doing. We've got Lola Ugumboti, the head of women's football at Burnley, coming on uh, to join us later in the show. But I just want to say thanks very much, Rachel, for giving up so much time while you're out there in Australia. I know it's it's uh, difficult uh, to get, get time to do things like this, so we really, really appreciate it. It's been great to hear you and Chris uh, talking together, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll return on the podcast sometime and talk some more football. Yeah, bit of a bit of a you know start for Burnley for the men uh, three nil. Not to be expected. Bit of a write off that first game. You know, it was a good one to tee off the season. Disappointed that Luton game can't go ahead, but absolutely delighted to see them back in the Premier League. And and like you said, uh, going back to the women to see Lola in place. I met her a couple of times now. It's uh, it's moving in the right direction, and I'm really proud of everything. Certainly, that first game at Turf Moor was history, and I've known that you know that the first time is always like the hardest and, and most difficult moment to get to. But after that first time, it opens the door and it always makes the next one easier. We'll all be uh, listening to you on Sunday. I hope you have a fantastic day, and I hope those uh, tears are tears of joy. <laughs> thanks very much Rachel Indeed. and thank you Chris for always being there for me and with me I appreciate it and I'll never forget that oh, absolute pleasure absolute pleasure thank you Thanks to Chris, Simon and, of course, Rachel for that. And don't forget, you can listen to Rachel's commentary on the Women's World Cup final on Sunday. Coverage starts at 10am UK time on BBC One. Now, Simon also sat down with Burnley Football Club's head of women's sport, Lola Organbotte, to find out a little bit more about the club's plans for the women's team ahead of their season opener on Sunday. So, Lola, when we look at the women's programme at Burnley, Burnley Football Club, we've seen a lot of changes since uh, Alan Pace and the new ownership group came into the club. Could you sort of sum up where, where the women's setup was when, when the group took over and, and, and where it's been going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a whirlwind uh, for the past two years, if I'm honest, Simon. So we had ALK over two seasons ago, um, Prior to their takeover, the women's team sat under the community um, very much uh, in the shadows, um, but still being taken care of. They'd had back-to-back promotion from lower tiers up until 
uh, they got to tier three. So under really limited resources, did really, really well. We then had the takeover. Uh, Alan made it very clear that one of his priorities was to create a women's team that would sit under the club, that would have more of a professional outfit than it, than it ever did. Uh, and so we were tasked with making changes. Uh, I was hired for a start, and that was, I think, one of the, the first steps is who's going to lead the charge in trying to move this women's team in the right direction. Um, and it was, you know, a, a long chat with Alan in terms of what his vision was. And I, I quickly knew that, that he was being serious and it wasn't about lip service to the women's team, but right. more actual action. So those steps include, you know, making sure that, we have pre-match meals, making sure we have the right staffing. So a head coach, an assistant, a physio, a nutritionist, a club psych, um, goalkeeper coach, an analyst, all of that around the players, making sure that the players were able to be paid. Some of them are contracted. That was the first time we'd done that as a club for some of our players, uh, ensuring that they could travel um, to and from training and not in their own cars to try and take off that stress and fatigue, make sure we had a good venue. So we play at the uh, Lancashire FA, um, which arguably is probably one of the best venues in our league. So all of these things um, to help in the first step of professionalising um, what we hope to be a successful women's team going forward. And and the team actually train most of the time or all of the time at, at, at the same facility as the men now, yeah? Is that right? Yeah, we have um, we have uh, uh, access to the training ground. So our gym sessions are here, our pre-match meals are here, our analysis are here. Um, it's not uncommon to see the players in and around the building. We do have our own private facility that we train on, which sits across the road from the training ground. So we have a private college that we have access to uh, right. sessions. Uh, and we also have our, we had most of our pre-match and pre-season games here Uh at Barnfield as well. So there's definitely a lot more integration than there's ever been in the club's history. Um, and there probably is still more that, that is in the works to come. But uh, we've made exceptional progress up until now. So the team at the moment, for those who don't follow the, the women's team's fortunes, the team at the moment are in the third tier of, of, of the English women's structure, yes? Yeah? So promotion this team season would, would if that was successful, Put the women's team into the equivalent of the men's championship. Yeah, is that is that a fair description? Yeah, yeah. If you were to, to do it like for like, you've got the WSL, which is akin to the to the Premier League. You have the Championship, which is akin to the Championship, and then Tier Three, which would probably be akin to, to League One. So, uh, in terms of um, where we want to be, we want to be in in the WSL. But before we can get that far, we need to get promoted into the Championship. So that's absolutely our ambition as a club this season is to secure promotion. And where are the players coming from? Because traditionally, I know I remember when the team trained at Nelson and Cone College, and it was near where I lived. And I used to, I used to uh, wander to the pub down the corner and see the players, uh, you know, coming out of training. Um, I'm guessing um, that maybe the net is spread a little bit further than just. I know there are still people players from the Burnley area on the team, but it, 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 has the net been spread further in the sort of search for talent to get up to the higher levels? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen and. Um being able to attract talent from from all over all over the country obviously Burnley is is in the northwest and it's uh it's a specific area but um we have players traveling I've got a player that travels in from Wales I've got players that travel in from 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 Sheffield I've got a player that has moved up from Leicester I've got players that are in and around Manchester and Blackburn and 
those surrounding areas. So yeah, it's um, definitely, we're definitely diverse in where people are coming from. Um, we're able to attract that talent, I believe, because of what, what we're doing and, and how we're trying to, to get that journey to the top going. So a lot of interest this season and that was reflected in the recruitment process in my first season. I think I put out an ad for a, a head coach. I had 35 applicants, two of which were women. This season, um, when we did our ad, we had 75 applicants, 10 of which are women. So you right. can just season that that excitement, that um, growth, that interest um, shows that for me as well, an indication that we're moving in, in the right direction and attracting the right talent, more importantly. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about the the new manager, because that's a fairly recent appointment, yeah? Yeah, yeah, Rebecca Savuk is our new manager and... Um, just delighted with her appointment. She uh, has extensive experience in, in the game, has coached uh, in academy and PDP, has coached in the championship previously, has coached with the national team under-19s, um, is just well-versed in knowing how to manage and lead a squad. And so that experience, uh, coupled with the fact that she is driven, hardworking and, and a winner, wants to win, um, was 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 the deciding factor in, in appointing her and um she's been in she's relocated she's got straight onto the ground and is uh is busy and she's got a, a fantastic squad um that, that are ready to kind of uh, play the new way under her i mean in many ways the women's game now is not that dissimilar for the men's in the sense that if you want to get into the wsl you do have to invest quite a lot and the transfer yeah. market exists we're seeing top players you know, many of the players who are playing in this World Cup and producing this brilliant football that everyone's enjoying are already playing in the WSL. They've been signed by the big clubs, which are the are the same big clubs that, that we look at in the Premier League as well. Yeah. So is is there a plan for further investment or is it something that has to sort of evolve a little bit more organically? There's always a plan for further investment. And Alan is a, a somebody who has big visions, big plans for the women's team. He's also someone that understands, as do I, that things take time and need to be done uh, pragmatically and not not just for the sake of everybody else is doing it, we're going to do it that way. You've seen that with the way that um, Vincent Company recruited uh, last season and, and there was a lot of talk around, is it too much, is it not? And it proved to be his way and that was the right way. And I would definitely say that we're in the same position. We are going to do it the right way, but we're going to do it the Burnley way. And so, yes, there are ambitions to get to the WSL. Yes, there is funding available to get us there, but we're not going to rush. We're going to do it in a way that's going to make us sustainable. That means we're going to stay up there and it means it's going to be competitive. And so that might take a bit longer than we just want to get there overnight. I mean, in terms of fans being able to support the team, I mean, that Lancashire FA facility at Leyland is is an excellent facility for the players, but it, it's a little bit inconvenient for fans from the Burnley area, isn't it? I mean, it's not yeah. miles away, but it's it's not next door either. It, are there any plans to play some showcase games at Turf Moor or, or 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 do something to maybe engage the fans in a different way? Yeah, we're absolutely wanting to make sure that as many Burnley fans are able to watch and support the women's team. Um, I think one of the things that um, you highlight correctly is the Lancashire FA is a fantastic facility. And so one of the key markers for us trying to get to that level is to ensure that the women's team have access to the best facilities. Now, in, in Burnley, we are trying to make sure that we can access and, and, and get collaboration with venues and, and try and even make 
make a, a plan long term to see if we can bring the women's team back to Burnley. Um, right. Definitely the conversations we're having. It's definitely what I want. It's what the club wants. We want to be in Burnley. We want to play. We want the town to come and watch us. But for the time being now, there isn't a stadium that fits criteria. And a lot of people are, are unaware that, that there is a criteria. If we're going to go to right. the time, it has to have a grade criteria. And some of the places that have been thrown out, or oh, you can play here, you can play here. Yes, we could, but it wouldn't meet the criteria for us to get into the championship. So what we're trying to do is is try and see if there are existing stands that we could perhaps help to get to that criteria. Um, or if there's the option to try and you know do something here at Turf Moor or at, at Barnfield. So those plans, like you know, planning permission, all of that stuff takes a while. But those conversations are absolutely happening in terms of playing at Turf Moor. That will happen, um, not just as a showcase, but because it is what the ownership want. Um, and so I'm I'm excited. We, d- we did that at the back end of last season for the very first time in our history. Mm. And it was a occasion. And so the the ownership want, want that. They want more of that. They want more fans through the door. And so that will absolutely happen this season as well. Yeah, it's a tricky one for a lot of clubs, isn't it? The venue, even even like the very biggest Premier League clubs, they... They, they 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 play at grounds that aren't there, the same as their men's team, and and sometimes it's too big of a leap in terms of capacity and all, all the rest of it. It, it is it is a tricky one. It's interesting what you say about the the you know Barnfield as an as an option because that's kind of the way Manchester City have gone. I know they've got the convenience that they've got the training ground right next to the uh, the stadium as well, but that's just that is quite a nice setup they've got there, isn't it? I mean there are there are different models, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think with Man City, the luxury they had was uh, foresight, whereas everybody else has had hindsight. So when you think of a club like Burnley, or you know, founded way back when, I don't know that they ever could have imagined or foreseen that they would one day have to. Exactly. Accomplish. Yeah. Whereas with the newer money, which 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 is what we would term clubs like your Man Cities, they were forward planning. They were able to say, actually, we can do academy women's all here because it wasn't something that they were thinking about, you know, retrospectively. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure um, at the right time and if, if it is possible, we would we would love to do that. But we've, we've also got to make sure that it works from a logistics perspective. We've got to make sure we get planning permission. There's so many conversations that need to happen before we can say, we're just going to erect a building and, and build it here. If it was that simple, and we would have done it yesterday. But sadly, you know, we've, we've got to make sure that we're, we're compliant. We, we back onto a national trust. So there's a lot of... Um, right, yeah. A lot of conversations that need to happen before we can just, you know, say, yeah, we want to we want to build a building. But it is that's something that we are discussing for sure. Yeah, parking's never been easy at that, at that part of... Uh... <laughs> Um, in terms of this World Cup at the moment, I mean, there's just such an incredible level of excitement about around the Lionesses. And obviously, if they go and win the World Cup this weekend, it's going to be another boom that's probably going to be much, much bigger than even the Euros, which kicked off so many interesting initiatives. Yeah. Do you think do you think that Burnley are well-placed to sort of capture that enthusiasm? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, just just as a starter, you know, we we are going to be um, live streaming the game at the fan zone um, at, at Turf Moor, free entry, try and get as many people to watch the Lionesses on Sunday as possible. Um, f- for us, you know, women's football remains a, a priority. We know that the Euros had such a lasting effect and to, to even think about, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but to think about doing the Euros backed with a World Cup for women's football would be phenomenal for England. 
um, such rich sport in football in history for the women's team to be able to do that, you know, would be unbelievable. So we're all excited. We're trying to make sure that we're not getting ahead of ourselves, but it it does look it looks like it, it could happen. And, and I don't want to jinx it, but we're all ready and raring to get behind the team. And I know that that will increase conversations back here. If that does happen, it's going to do that anyway, because we've got to a, a final for, for, for the first time. So more schools are going to be talking about football. More football clubs are going to be thinking, of how do we support the women's team? More grassroots, hopefully are able to access more funding. So, you know, it means a lot to a lot of people in different ways. And so, we're hoping it goes our way and that there's a legacy that, that lives on as a result of this group um, being able to be at a World Cup final. Brilliant. Well, let's hope so. It's a, an exciting new season for Burnley and the chance to, to push towards a goal as, of, of promotion. Um, as, as we saw last season with the men's team, it can, it can generate an incredible momentum, can't it? But really interesting to catch up, Lola, and to, and to learn about what's going on on, on the women's side of the club. And uh, good luck for the new season. Thank you very much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.